Please open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 66. And let's look at that passage that was just read to us very briefly. Isaiah chapter 66. What in the world is God saying in that third verse? He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. What do these words mean? These words show the difference between those that tremble at God's words and want to do exactly what the Bible teaches and those that have their traditional religion received from their fathers that is counter to God's word. There is a man in the second verse who is poor and of a contrite spirit. He claims no wisdom. He is a babe of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he trembles at God's Word. That same man is described again in verse 5. And because he trembles at God's Word and wants to do things God's way, his brethren hate him, and they cast him out, and they think they're doing God a service. While they cast this brother out that they hate, They say, let the Lord be glorified. They sound so, oh, sanctimonious and religious. They have such a form of religion. And the Lord says, I will appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. Because pure religion is found by humbling yourself to the Word of God and hating every opinion of every man and all opinions of all men. David said, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. There is a place for hatred in the heart of a child of God, and it's for anything contrary to the Word of God. When you worship God in any way other than the way He has specified in the Bible, this is what happens to your worship. When you kill an ox under the Old Covenant... To honor the Lord, the Lord considers it as meaningful to him as murder on your hands. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. I receive that sacrifice as much as I would receive the sacrifice of killing your neighbor. He that sacrificeth a lamb is as if he cut off a dog's neck. There's an ellipsis for the verb is. It's from the first clause. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. When you bring a lamb to offer it on my altar, but you don't do it the way that I have specified, or you are not living a life in agreement with that religion, then I consider it you offering the vilest animal I created, and that's a dog's neck. He that offers an oblation... Is this as if he offered swine's blood, the other filthy creature that he created? Throughout the Bible, dogs and pigs are compared together for the two vilest, filthiest, crudest, cruelest animals God created. He that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol. You burn incense to me, but you don't do it in the way I specified. I consider you're doing it to an idol. This is the word of the Lord to us. There is a way that God has told us to worship Him, and He expects us to hold fast to it and not to modify it in any way, shape, or form. And that is what we have been studying the last couple of weeks and what we shall continue to study this morning. We will be cast out by the most religious people. And I say most religious, and I use it in the world sense of that word. They have a form of religion, and they'll hate us. And they'll cast us out, and they'll say they're doing God a favor. And they'll say the Lord is blessing us. And let the Lord be magnified, but the Lord will deliver us. And so, though we may be few, as all our fathers were few for the last 2,000 years, we shall not veer to the left hand or to the right from what God has told us. Let us hold fast to the old paths. And let us not add to nor take away from His Word, no matter... 
who or how many might gather together against us. We are dealing with the ancient landmarks of our fathers. And our fathers are the fathers of the apostles and those that came from them. That was the first passage that was read this morning, Isaiah 66, 1 through 5. We then had Acts 19 read through us, where we have an example of Anabaptists in the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul met some men, 12 men that we read about there in Acts 19, he asked them if they knew anything about the Holy Ghost, if they'd received the Holy Ghost. And they said they were totally ignorant of Him. He said, then what in the world were you baptized unto? Because there's an event that happened in New Testament baptism, and that was the Holy Ghost as a sealing ministry was conveyed to those believers that were baptized. And they said, we haven't even heard that there even be a Holy Ghost. Well, what were you baptized unto? We were baptized unto John's baptism. And then he explained that John was simply a precursor or a messenger for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they were baptized by Paul in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid his hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost and spake in tongues. Now our ancestors in the faith were called Anabaptists. And I've explained this to you before, but I'll explain it again because learning is by repetition. I don't want you to fail to remember these things. Our fathers in the faith were called Anabaptists because everyone that comes to our communion from any other communion that comes out of Rome, we rebaptize. They were called by their enemies Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers. But we have never been rebaptizers. And the Anabaptists hated that term. That was a slur created by their enemies because they weren't rebaptizing. Anybody that comes from Rome or Rome's daughters has never been baptized. So they hated that term. They weren't rebaptizing anyone. They knew that their baptism was the only baptism those parties had ever received. Then we went to 1 John chapter 4 where we are told, He that is of God heareth us. Now who was speaking? But an apostle. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It's how well they agree with the words of the apostles. It doesn't matter how well they agree with anyone else at any other time, in any other place. How do they agree with the apostolic tradition? We are traditionalists. Apostolic tradition. And may the Lord bless us as we consider this study. Turn back in your Bibles to Proverbs 22 and verse 28. To that little verse that I'm using as our text to get our attention and to give us a title and to give us something to remind ourselves of what we're studying. Proverbs chapter 22. Let me remind you of why the Lord brought this series of messages to bear. Three weeks ago today, I was on vacation. I had been in our Charlestown, Charleston, South Carolina. A couple of years ago. And I want you to remember these things. This is part of our heritage. And I wonder if we and our children and our children's children will be as faithful and as courageous as these men that I told you about and that I tell you about again. There in the First Baptist Church of Charleston, I found a plaque, a bronze plaque, reminding anyone who visited that place of how the Baptists came to Charleston. Now, the ancient deacons that stood around there knew very little about that plaque and less about the men that were described in it and nothing about the doctrine the men described that it held, which doctrine we still hold to this day. The first Baptists in all the southern part of the United States came to Charleston, South Carolina. There were no Baptists anywhere else. William Screven was a Baptist preacher in Kittery, Maine. He was ordained out of the First Baptist Church of Boston. They didn't have those names back then. Those are Southern Baptist names given to churches today. William Screven was a shipbuilder that had come from England. He had signed one of our Baptist confessions in England. He was in Kittery, Maine. He had a congregation of 28 people. 
He preached against infant baptism. The standing order of that state, meaning the state church of Maine, were the Congregationalists. He was jailed for preaching against infant baptism and calling it an invention of the devil. He was told that if he wanted any mercy, he would have to take his church and leave the state of Maine. And this is the United States of America. You know, the land of the free and the home of the brave, they tell us. But if you want to be a Baptist, you're going to suffer persecution wherever you go. Because what we are saying to the rest of, rest of Christendom is your Baptist, your baptisms are not acceptable to the Bible. And so William Screven said that and he had to leave the state of Maine. He put 28 people of that little church into a boat, came down the coastline to Charleston, and in 1684, we had a Baptist church in the southern half of the United States on the Cooper River that flows into Charleston Harbor. A few years later, he's old, he's old now. A few years later, he takes his youngest son, Elisha, of 11 children, and goes 70 miles north to Georgetown. There was no Georgetown, though. All there were were swamps and rivers. And he establishes a plantation there, lays out a city, and starts a second church. And he names that church Antipodo Baptist Church of Christ. And I'm playing with your minds by mispronouncing the word. Antipodo Baptist Church of Christ. It's not Antipodo. It's Antipado. Anti-Pado Baptist Church of Christ. His father had been jailed in Maine. He established his church next to the Church of England in the city of Georgetown and named the church Anti-Pado Baptist Church of Christ because they were against Pado baptisms. Pado is for child, like your pediatrician is a child doctor. There I was in Georgetown, wondering how the Lord would revive me on this vacation. He always does. I just never know how he's going to do it. I'm in this little tiny town of Georgia. It's about the size of Fountain Inn. It's not very big. And lo and behold, knowing the names of the Screvens, I see Screven Street. And if you follow Screven Street, it ends at Church Street. And there is a one-acre Baptist cemetery with a large monument saying, Anti-Pado Baptist Church of Christ listing all their members and their births and deaths in the first hundred years of their existence. And there are monuments reminding anyone who passes through that town that that town was founded by two Baptist preachers who came from Kittery, Maine, who were persecuted in this country for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I have a 17-year-old daughter who listens to things like that and talks a little bit at work. And she works in a doctor's office where there are seven doctors. And one of those doctors found out that her parents had been to Georgetown, and he asked her, what in the world would your parents want to go visit Georgetown for? That's where I was born and raised. She said, my father loves Baptist history. And my father found out that the man that laid out your town of Georgetown. His name was Elisha Screven, and he founded the Anapato Baptist Church of Christ that eventually became the first Baptist Church of Georgetown when they compromised their integrity and character by altering their name in 1911 to make it a little bit more palatable for our generation. You know, Baptists today don't even want the name in their, the word Baptist in their name. They'd rather have Southside Fellowship then they would have Southside Baptist Church. And so it is across our whole country. We live in a generation of compromise, and the whole reason for this series of messages is lest we compromise. Let's hold fast to what God has shown us. He said, I never heard of any of that. And I was baptized in the First Baptist Church of Georgetown. Didn't know anything about it. Didn't know about the Screvens. Didn't know about Anapato Baptist Church. Didn't know about the cemeteries in that town. Didn't know about the little Screven family cemetery that honors a pioneer, a Baptist pioneer that was willing to suffer persecution in Maine and in South Carolina to preach the gospel. 
May the Lord cause us to remember Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28, which is what the Lord impressed upon me as I walked through those city streets and saw sign after sign reminding people of where that city had come from. The Bible says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Now this is Solomon's warning to his son to maintain the rights of real property, to protect the inheritance of the twelve tribes of Israel, that their inheritance of land and pastures and fields be not compromised by thieves. But we are taking this verse to remind us that God has also set landmarks for us to follow in doctrine and practice, which our fathers have set. They are ancient landmarks because they began with the apostles. They are our fathers in the faith. We claim no other. The church fathers are worthless. The church fathers are less than worthless. They agree on nothing. They disagree on everything. They are claimed by Rome. They are not our fathers. Our fathers are apostolic fathers and men who have walked in the footsteps of the apostles. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 6. And let's remember that we are told to look for the old paths. Now, old does not make it right. Because something is old does not make it truth. But apostolic truth will be old. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. The Lord says, Walk therein. His people say, we will not walk therein. Every day we have a choice. The Lord tells us the way that we should walk. Every day we have a choice that we will walk in that way or we will refuse to walk in that way. Let us humble ourselves and tremble before His Word and walk in His way. And not turn aside to the left hand nor to the right. Let us not add or take away from His commandments, but let us find those old paths where is the good way, and let us stay in that path. Amen. The first landmark I gave you two weeks ago was this precious book right here. Amen. This is one thing. This is our first landmark that we shall not leave. It is the King James Bible. We do not believe in the King James Bible being God's words in English for the 21st century because King James authorized it. We do not believe in the King James Bible being God's words in the English language in the 21st century because Church of England scholars translated it. We do not believe because it has better manuscript evidence. We believe that this Bible you hold is God's Word by far better criteria than that. And that is faith and fruit. Do not ever let anyone get you going down the road on trying to defend a Bible version by manuscript evidence because that argument will never be settled on this side of heaven because you have left the Bible to even enter the battlefield. God doesn't care. He has already told His little sheep and His little people who will put their trust in Him that they do not need to rely on scribes and textual critics to find the Word of God. He promised He would preserve His words and He promised they would have the identifying characteristic of fruit. We have God's promises throughout His Word that He would preserve His words. Thou shalt preserve them, speaking of the plural words of God in Psalm 12, 7, from this generation forever. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The word of the Lord endureth forever. Now go, Isaiah, write it in a book and note it in a table that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. One jot or one tittle shall not pass from the law till all be fulfilled, our Lord taught. We have his promises. Then he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word of God is pure. 
And where the Word of God is preached, it works effectually in those that believe. Where has spiritual revival gone that has resulted in holy and godly living where men were willing to lay down their lives at the martyr's stake or in the Colosseum? Where has that Word been? What Word was it that brought such fruit? Where has this Word been preached? Where nations allowed it and promoted it to be preached and those nations were blessed. The English-speaking world for 400 years has enjoyed great blessings because of that book, the King James Bible. We can look at national blessings, financial, economic, peace, judicial. We can look at spiritual revival. We can look at evangelism. We can look at changed lives, changed families, godly living, fruit-bearing, and we find that it follows the King James Bible. Right now, we are living in a collapse of Christianity. We are living in the perilous times of the last days. We live in a generation of carnal Christians. And look at their Bible versions. They no longer want that Bible. They hate that Bible. They make fun of that Bible. They say, you're so old-fashioned with that Bible. Praise the Lord when we hear that. You know what they're saying? You're walking in Jeremiah 6.16, the old paths, and we get thankful because they tell us we're old-fashioned. But as the Christian world collapses around us, they're inventing a new Bible every six months. And all those new Bibles disagree, and we don't need to go look at their manuscript evidence. I show you, I prove to you, that those Bibles are the work of children. Because God has left errors in them that are so obvious, any child can figure them out. Every Bible version... Since 1901 in this country, unless it's a paraphrase of the King James, doesn't even have the right man killing Goliath in 2 Samuel 21:19. It doesn't have Mark quoting the right prophet in Mark chapter 1 and verse 2, and the list goes on and on, but yet again, we don't even have to go there. Do you know what we go for? God promised to preserve His words, and spiritual fruit would follow. Beware of false prophets, He said. The principle applies to false Bible versions. Ye shall know them by their fruits. And look at the fruits of this modern proliferation of other Bible versions. It is not bringing men back to the Bible. There is not revival. There is declension. There is decline. There is death. There is compromise with the world. There is doctrinal compromise. There's practical compromise. By their fruits, ye shall know them. Children, do not leave the Bible when you debate the Bible. If you leave the Bible to debate the Bible, you enter into a controversy that cannot be solved. Though it can. Many men have done work on the textual integrity of the King James Bible and the manuscript evidence for it, but that is not where our faith rests. Our faith rests on God's promise, we believe that by faith, and on His promise that fruit would follow His Word. It would change lives It would bear effectual fruit. And that's where you want to stand. And that's our first landmark, the King James Bible. Now, I've spent hours and hours and hours, and there's many documents defending the King James Bible on our website. You've heard it all before, so we don't have reason to go into detail on any of these landmarks. All we want to do is mention them to remind them to you that we must hold fast to these landmarks or we will head down the slippery slope along with those around us. And I'm ashamed to say that that is the vast majority of Baptists. We have the precious words of God, and let's hold to them. In the outline on the battle for the Bible, I have over 50 different arguments that show the King James Bible to be superior, and I don't have to resort to anything that's up for debate. You just look at the Bible and how the Lord describes His Word and its different effects, and I've multiplied those arguments to show individual argument after individual argument how superior the King James Bible is to its competitors. But it's going the way of all flesh. But we're going to keep it. You know, just a few years from now, it'll have its 400th anniversary. And what an effect it's had on the world. Even pagans have to admit that it's the greatest piece of literature ever written in the English language. They all know the profound effect it's had. The greatest rulers in the English world for the last 400 years, the vast majority of them were readers of the King James Bible. 
I'm thankful for it. You better be thankful for it. We don't worship a book. We worship the God who promised to preserve a book. And we have inspired Scripture, not because the translators were inspired, but God preserved inspired words. We treat the Bible as the inspired Scriptures. We We rely on each word that is there. We will argue and defend for every single word in the King James Bible. If we don't understand it, we give God the benefit of the doubt that there's hidden wisdom there that we're not smart enough to identify. But we never call it in question. They have no book like that. And do you know what they have to do to prove the doctrine of inspiration? If you go to seminary, how do they prove the doctrine of inspiration? They quote 2 Timothy 3.16 from a King James Bible. Well, now, if you don't have preservation, you don't have inspiration. Because how can you be quoting something in the 21st century unless you believe that God's preserved it in order to prove your doctrine of inspiration? They love to talk about the original autographs. The original autographs were never put in a book. Relatively speaking, no one ever read the original autographs. I say that because there were only a few dozen people that read the originals. God's people, for 2,000 years, I'm talking about the New Testament, have read copies of copies of copies of copies of translations of copies of copies of copies of translations. And you know what? Whenever we find the word Scripture used in the New Testament, whether it's the Bereans looking at it, whether it's Timothy having it from from childhood, or whether it's what Timothy was to preach, they were called the Scriptures. And the Scriptures cannot be broken. And you know we can take every modern book that calls itself a Bible and break it. The King James Bible stands. It's our first landmark. Don't you ever leave it. Don't ever read it and say, this is so confusing. No, get down on your knees and pray this prayer. Psalm 119, verse 18. Lord, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Because what you think is confusing has divine wisdom if the Lord will show it to you. That's our landmark. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses came to our brother John Fisher's door last Saturday. Now, John Fisher went and got the right book. There's only one book you want to ever handle with a Jehovah's Witness, and it's not the one they're carrying. The one they're carrying is called the New World Translation from 1961, and it's altered every verse about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in order for them to defend their doctrine that Jesus Christ is just a created God. But John Fisher wanted to show that man John 1.1 in a King James Bible. And then John 1.14, that the Son of God was fully God. He wasn't a begotten God. He was God. Which brings us to our second point, a second landmark. And these aren't necessarily even in order, except I think the first one should be the King James Bible. From then on, it's what does that Bible tell us about the words of God? Remember? In Isaiah 66, it said, I will approach unto this man, a man that's poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. We start with his word, and then we go from there. What does God have to say? John 1.1 in a Jehovah's Witness Bible. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. John 1, 1 in our Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen. Verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. The only begotten Son of God is God becoming flesh. Apart from God becoming flesh, God did not have a son. God is God. God, the highest, God, the Word, and God, the Holy Ghost, if you need names for them. But the Lord our God is one God, and He's one Lord. So that Jesus Christ is Jehovah Himself. Jesus Christ is I am that I am. Jesus Christ is not I am what the Father begot. 
Jesus Christ in His divine nature is Jehovah Himself, fully God. In His mediatorial person, that means the man who is our mediator and our Savior, He is the God-man. He is both God and man. He's fully God and fully man. He is Jehovah in His divine nature. He's fully man in His human nature, making Him a perfect Savior for us. In His divine nature, He's called the Everlasting Father. Do you all know that verse? Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, The Mighty God. Don't look that up in a JW Bible. You use your King James Bible so that it has the definite article, the. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ in His divine nature is not a begotten Son. Jesus Christ in His divine nature is the everlasting Father. Because it was the fullness of the Godhead that was in Him bodily. He only became a son through the womb of Mary. When God fathered a son without the use of a man, because the angel told Mary, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And John said it was the Word made flesh that we could actually behold, God can't be seen, that we could actually behold and know that that's the only begotten Son of God. John 1.18 goes on to say, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father he hath revealed him. Amen. John 1.18. Right. That's how we see God is through the man Christ Jesus. He's fully God and he's fully man. And so John was able to show a Jehovah's Witness, John 1.1 and John 1.14. And the man got a little confused with John's questions about exactly who is Jesus Christ if we rely on the words of God right here in this passage. And he beat a hasty retreat. And John called me thankful for the word of God that we have. And for learning the Word of God and knowing the places in the Word of God to turn to, to know who Jesus Christ is. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not compromised in any single way. We will not let theologians anywhere at any time compromise the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is Jehovah, unbegotten, unproceeding, fully God. Amen. The doctrine of eternal generation was invented by a man named Origen. It did not come from a Bible. There's nothing in the Bible about it whatsoever. God was manifest in the flesh. That is the great mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 And that's what we believe. That's where we rest. And that's what we're thankful for. We're thankful that we have the most perfect mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout history, the devil has wanted to destroy the identity and the character of Jesus Christ because the devil cannot stand the fact that there is a man that is now his superior and who is going to destroy him for eternity. The seed of the woman. Our Lord Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman in His human nature. The Son of God in His combined nature. God in the flesh in His divine nature. Combined He's fully God and fully man, the Son of God, the God-man, the Mediator, our High Priest, and worthy of all your worship, love, and service. Our third landmark that we looked at was the doctrine of baptism. And you know I was obviously convicted and provoked by that because I was in Georgetown and ran into that Anapato Baptist Church of Christ. And I was so happy to have met a man that had that kind of courage to put his little church location on Church Street next to the Church of England, who was the state church of the province of South Carolina, and name his church Anapato, Baptist Church of Christ. The shame came when I kept asking the historians of that little town in their county museum what the word Anapato meant. And only those ladies from the Church of England understood what it meant. The Baptists, even several of them who were members of the First Baptist Church, didn't know what it meant. And that's a shame. Because like the First Baptist Church in our city, they no longer care how you get the water applied. You might as well spray a fire hose at them in the parking lot because they don't care. They as Baptists have said we will no longer care. And that's to give up the whole name even though they keep it 
because they still want to be the FBC of Greenville. We looked at the doctrine of baptism. We saw in the Bible that John was baptizing in a place called Anan, near to Salem. And why does the Bible want to tell us that John was baptizing in a little town called Anan that was near to Salem? Why does it want to tell us that in John 3.23? Because there was much water there. If you didn't need much water, why in the world would the Holy Spirit tell us that? That John was baptizing there. Why did John take Jesus down into much water? Why did Jesus come straightway up out of much water? Why did Philip and the eunuch stop where they found much water? Why did Philip and the eunuch both go down into the much water? Why did Philip and the eunuch both come up out of the water? Why is baptism called a picture and a figure and a pattern of death, burial, and resurrection? Because it's by immersion. That's why we're Baptists. That's why John was a Baptist. What does Baptist mean? It means to be a dipper. It's always meant to dip. It always shall mean to dip. John was a dipper. Jesus was a dipper. Mary was a dipper. They were all dippers. And we've dipped for 2,000 years. No one had ever thought of anything other than dipping for 300 years. There's absolutely no record of it whatsoever. Even the Church of England 400 years ago was dipping their babies three times. You know, this is not a sermon on baptism because it's just a landmark. I've preached on baptism many times before and there's many, many documents on our website. There's a line of Anabaptists that stretch back through time to the apostles themselves. They were called Anabaptists. They were called Waldensians. They were called Petrobrusians. They were called Bogomiles. They were called Lollards. They were called all sorts of names based on either the place where they were located or one of their main leaders. Let's look at another landmark. You children, don't you ever give up the Bible doctrine of baptism. Amen. Every one of you that I've ever baptized, in this, every one that I've ever baptized, I gave the most important verse in the Bible about baptism to, and that's 1 Peter 3.21. That verse says, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That verse in a King James Bible says that baptism is a figure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to get a figure out of baptism of resurrection, and that's to bury a person beneath the water and then to raise them back up again out of it, which has been done for 2,000 years. If you go into a modern version on 1 Peter 3.21, you will find that baptism is no longer a figure. The ark, which is in verse 20, has now become a figure of baptism. Where it says in parentheses in that verse that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God, the new versions say that baptism is the request for a good conscience. Entirely different. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. That requires someone old enough to have an active conscience that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and wants to answer God for giving him a good conscience by hearing the gospel that told him the blood of Christ had washed away his sins. It's gone. It says in our Bibles that baptism does not put away the filth of the flesh. The new versions say baptism doesn't wash away the dirt of the body. See, by changing those words to say that baptism doesn't wash away the dirt of your body, they can keep their doctrine of baptismal regeneration that it does wash away sin. In a King James Bible, it says it doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. Jesus Christ put away the filth of our flesh by the sacrifice of Himself. 1 Peter 3.21, my favorite verse on baptism. It's the most definitive verse on baptism in the Bible. It's hardly ever preached. Hardly anyone even knows about it. It's a shame. It tells you that baptism is a figure of something. It's a picture of something. And what is it a picture of? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how we can understand 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? You know, the Mormons come along and grab a verse like that and teach baptism for dead relatives. They have the most extensive genealogical records in the United States. And you can be baptized over and over in an underground baptistry in their temples for dead relatives by proxy. 
Because, see, they made the fatal assumption. Unless you had a Joseph Smith baptism in one of his temples, you can't be saved. And as soon as you make a false assumption like that, then you need to figure out what you're going to do for dead relatives because that just gets little old ladies upset that their parents can't go to heaven unless they have a Joseph Smith baptism. And so they baptize for the dead from 1 Corinthians 15.29. There is no answer for 1 Corinthians 15.29 unless you're a Baptist. The only people that can look at 1 Corinthians 15.29 and know exactly what Paul's talking about are Baptists because we are buried in a picture of death and resurrection. Paul is preaching about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and so he's making the point, what in the world are you Corinthians being baptized in a picture of death for if you don't believe in the resurrection anymore? And see, only someone that's burying a person in the picture of death, burial, and resurrection can get into 1 Corinthians 15.29 and come out of it unscathed. I told you about Matthew Henry and his nine explanations for what the text means. And he gets to the end. He says, you know what? I really don't know what it means. We can't figure it out today. But we know one thing for sure. The Corinthians must have understood it. The reason Matthew Henry couldn't handle the verse is because he didn't believe in baptism according to the Bible. Right. And immersionists can go in there easily because we understand exactly what we're saying when we're baptized. We're saying, if you bury me in a cemetery, I make my profession today that Jesus Christ rose from the dead for me, and He's coming back for me, and He's going to raise me from the dead. Amen. Because if we have been planted together, I'm quoting from Romans 6, if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Amen. You get planted by being buried under something. Amen. That is our third landmark. The fourth landmark. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. See, we're Baptists not just because we were born into some church and we believe it by tradition. We're Baptists by conviction because the Bible teaches us that. It's an apostolic tradition. That's the only traditions we want to hold to. Daniel chapter 2. You know, Daniel chapter 2 is long. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He challenged his soothsayers and magicians to tell him about the dream. In order to make sure he got a true answer, he said, why don't you tell me what I dreamed and then tell me the interpretation of it. You know, that helps. If, if Nebuchadnezzar had given them the dream, they could easily make up anything they wanted to. But he said, I'd like to hear the dream as well as the interpretation. Well, Daniel had secrets revealed to him. And there were four empires revealed here by that great image. There was a gold head. There were silver shoulders. There was a brass chest and belly. And there were legs of iron and clay. And Daniel explains that the head of gold is Babylon. Who defeated Babylon? Medo-Persia. The shoulders of silver. Who defeated Persia? Greece, Alexander the Great, the belly and chest of brass. Who defeated Greece? 30 B.C., Sea Battle of Actium, Augustus Caesar against Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Rome defeated the next empire. So the legs are the Roman Empire. And a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands and smote that image in its feet and broke it into pieces. And Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord is trying to tell you what's going to come hereafter. So we had the Babylonians, we had the Persians, we had the Greeks, we had the Romans, and then we had the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Daniel 2, 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Amen. Amen. That is the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been here since the days of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist's message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. It's called the kingdom of heaven because it was set up by the God of heaven in the days of the Roman kings. If you go over to Luke chapter 3, you have a whole list of the Roman kings, governors, procurators, and others that were in power at that time. In the days of these kings, John the Baptist came saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Then Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Most of the Christian world today believes the kingdom of God is not here yet. They believe that it's a future possibility. They believe that it's a future thing. They believe that it's an earthly thing, a carnal thing. It's a Jewish thing. It's a millennial thing. The kingdom of God has been here since Jesus Christ stood on this earth. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and He's just waiting for the time in which He shall show Himself as that King. Look at Luke 16 and verse 16. These are simple verses. I repeat them for you so that you will grasp them, remember them, use them, teach them, defend them, and that we will never vary from them. In the days of these kings, the Roman kings, the Roman government hasn't existed since 476 A.D. When wild barbarian tribes out of Europe came down and sacked the place, overthrew it, and it's never been anything like the Roman Empire since. Every time there's been a war fought, there's jokes about the Italians. They're nothing like like their Roman predecessors. And if any of you in here are Italian, I'm sorry. They've never been anything like the Roman Empire because they were overthrown in 476 A.D. and ceased to exist. Rome is nothing except a place to go look at ruins and kiss the toe of St. Peter. Look at Luke 16, 16. This is what we believe, children, adults, brothers, sisters. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. It, it, Could it be any plainer? C.I. Schofield and all these other futurists can say whatever they want. The kingdom of God was there in the days of John and Jesus, and men were pressing into it. How would you press into the kingdom? You repented of your sins and were baptized. They came and demanded of John, what shall we do that we might please God? Jesus said, when they accused him of casting out devils by the power of the devil... He said, but if I cast out devils with the Spirit of God, or with the finger of God, then no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. We believe in the present reality of the King Lord Jesus Christ. We don't believe that He's waiting for the throne of David. We believe that He's on it. We don't believe that He's going to establish the kingdom of David again. We believe that we're in it, and it's been here for 2,000 years, because we're able to read Acts chapter 15, where the great council at Jerusalem, and it's the only council we care about, it's one inspired by the God, by God Himself, said that the fulfillment of the prophets was taking place right then with Gentile conversions. That God was building again the tabernacle of David. The house of David, the kingdom of David, was being built up right then in Acts 15 by the conversion of Gentiles. Today, we are a unit, a part of the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel, the spiritual reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Hebrews 12, and I should have one of you stand and quote to us Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, where it says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, and on and on it goes to describe the great kingdom that we are a part of, in a spiritual way, by being followers of Jesus Christ in the world. We believe that. We believe the Israel of God is a spiritual people, made up of Jews and Gentiles, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We believe that Abraham believed that before there even was a nation of Israel. When we go to Hebrews chapter 11, we find out that Abraham wasn't looking for land in this world. He was looking for a heavenly country. When we go to Romans chapter 2, we find out that a true Jew is not one outwardly that has been circumcised in a bodily part. We find out that a true Jew is a Jew that is one inwardly, and circumcision has been that of the heart. We find out that Nathaniel in John chapter 1 was an Israelite indeed, but there were a whole lot of Israelites that Jesus said, Ye are of your father the devil. We find out that there are synagogues where Jews met and worshipped in Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9, and Jesus said they are the synagogue of Satan. But he said in Galatians chapter 6, ye are the Israel of God. We find in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 that the true seed of Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. Right. 
And we believe that in Galatians 3.16. But then it says in Galatians 3.29, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise is given to Abraham. We're spiritual promises of heaven. Spiritual promises of justification through Christ. Spiritual promises of having our enemies defeated and possessing the gate of our enemies fulfilled through Jesus Christ. We are the children of Abraham in the New Testament definition of those words. Thank you, Lord, for the landmarks you've given us. If these things are not held fast, they will slip away. If they are not held fast, they will be taken away. Paul said while he was living, For we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God while he was alive. 2 Corinthians 2.17 Paul, while he was alive, in chapter 11, was afraid that if anyone came preaching another Jesus, another gospel, and bringing another spirit, they would probably go ahead and listen to him. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, there were many false prophets among the people then, and there's going to be many false teachers among us. Paul warned the elders at Ephesus that many would arise even among themselves and speak false things to take away disciples after themselves. The warning is severe. The warning is sober. We need to be vigilant and we need to be diligent to remember these things and to hold them fast. We are King James Bible Baptists that believe in the incarnate sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ and that His kingdom is here and the true spiritual seed of Abraham and the true Israel of God are His Jews and Gentiles that were elect before the foundation of the world and saved by the blood of Christ. Those are five things we believe. And we must defend them. The Bible tells us in Jude 1 and verse 3, and I end with this verse. Brethren, it was needful for me to write unto you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. It was needful. If it was needful in Jude's day, what about our day? It was needful for me to write unto you that ye would earnestly contend for the faith, the faith, not faiths, the faith once delivered to the saints. It hasn't been coming to us through seminaries. It was delivered once by the inspiration of God upon His apostles, and it was written down in the New Testament, and that is what we follow. We are New Testament Christians. May God keep us that way. May He have mercy upon us. Without His grace and opening our eyes, ears, and heart, we wouldn't see, hear, or know a thing. It's by His grace. Humble yourself and have that poor and contrite spirit. And let's tremble before His Word and keep every word of it. You know, it's easier to keep the doctrine of baptism than it is to keep all the things that you and I are supposed to do every day of our lives. How we rule this. How we rule this. How we rule these. Let's make sure that we are living worthy of the gospel that we're proclaiming. Stand with me, please. Father in heaven, bless this word to our hearts. And have mercy upon us. Stir us up in our inner man. Let us be vigilant and diligent, sober, and committed in this day of compromise and decline. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us, O Lord, where our words of doctrine exceed our level of godliness. And bless us to be as faithful at home as we are at church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.